0: Corinth was the powerful, bustling, and wicked trade center of the Roman province of Achaia. When Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians to the members there, it wasn't his first letter to them. That one is lost to us in time, but this second letter that we call first was motivated in part by the concerns of a woman named Chloe and her household who had written him. We'll tell you why.
1: Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7 be perfectly joined together. Before we launch into today's topic, I want to remind you about our new 2020 calendar that I've created celebrating the bicentennial of Joseph Smith's first vision. As a professional photographer, I have shot thousands of photographs of the Joseph Smith Farm and, now to celebrate this significant and important year, we have created a calendar that includes beautiful photos, inspiring quotes, and the significant dates from that period of Joseph Smith's life. Put it on your wall, and your family can be reminded of and celebrate all year that important event the first vision that changed the course of history. Because only limited quantities of this calendar will be available, We are allowing you to pre-order now. The cost is $15. You can come and see the stunning images and see what it looks like here at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash calendar. You can also pre-order there. Though it's early to talk about Christmas, it will make a great gift for your neighbors, the people in your ministering circle, bishopric, the people you want to thank. It can make giving easier this year and take one thing off your list— Again, go here to latterdaysaintmagcom forward slash calendar and take a look and pre-order the First Vision calendar celebrating this bicentennial significant year.
0: These epistles that Paul wrote to the Corinthians were designed to regulate the church, clarify doctrine or ideas that had become misunderstood, and reconvert the shaky. You can imagine that when the apostle left, people who were fairly new converts might try to inject their own thinking and ideas into the pure doctrine of Christ. They didn't have years of understanding to build upon. One of the main concerns that had arisen in Corinth was division among the members. Paul wrote in First Corinthians, chapter 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you.
1: The Lord has a design for his people, and for ultimately building Zion, and that is, that they be of one heart and one mind. The Lord's people are marked by their unity. The Savior's atonement, which is at the center of our gospel, is all about bringing us at one with our Father. Receiving the gift of the atonement in our lives also brings us at-one with our families, with our spouses and with each other, When we are sealed as couples in the temple, we kneel across an altar that symbolizes Christ's sacrifice and atonement. We are made at one through Him. So, of course, the very essence of what Satan likes to do is divide us with anger, contention, hurt feelings, damaged pride. One of Satan's names is Diablo, which in Greek is Diabolos, the one who divides. He is the great divider. And there is no more potent way to accomplish this than with anger and contention, put downs, and contempt.
0: He called The Great Divorce, where a busload of people from hell take a field trip to heaven. I've always been intrigued by his description of hell, which he calls the gray town. It is a drab and desolate place with miles and miles of abandoned and boarded up buildings. Why? because people can't get along with each other. So offended, they move further and further away until someone like Napoleon was on the outskirts of town about 15,000 years of our time away, where he spends his time pacing back and forth in a huge house, muttering that his failed life wasn't his fault. It's the picture of misery and isolation. Satan would have us divided.
1: The Apostle Paul asks... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 of the Joseph Smith Translation, Can ye be angry, and not sin? When Christ arrives in the new world, among the first things He instructs the people in Third Nephi in the Book of Mormon is this, There shall be no disputations among you. For verily, verily I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away.
0: Disputation and anger not only make us miserable, but they can, as Paul was concerned, impact the church, then and now. President Thomas S. Monson said, I believe most of us are familiar with the sad account of Thomas B. Marsh and his wife, Elizabeth. Brother Marsh was one of the first modern-day apostles called after the Church was restored to the earth. He eventually became president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. While the saints were in Far West, Missouri, Elizabeth Marsh, Thomas's wife, and her friend, Sister Harris, decided they would exchange milk in order to make more cheese than they otherwise could. To be certain, all was done fairly. They agreed they should not save what were called the strippings, but that the milk and strippings should all go together. Strippings came at the end of the milking and were richer in cream. Sister Harris was faithful to the agreement, but Sister Marsh, desiring to make some especially delicious cheese, saved a pint of strippings from each cow and sent Sister Harris the milk without the strippings. This caused the two women to quarrel. When they could not settle their differences, the matter was referred to the home teachers to settle. They found Elizabeth Marsh guilty of failure to keep her agreement. She and her husband were upset with the decision, and the matter was then referred to the bishop for a church trial. The bishop's court decided that the strippings were wrongfully saved and that Sister Marsh had violated her covenant with Sister Harris.
1: Thomas Marsh appealed to the High Council, and the men comprising this council confirmed the bishop's decision. He then appealed to the First Presidency of the Church. Joseph Smith and his counselors considered the case and upheld the decision of the High Council. Elder Thomas B. Marsh, who sided with his wife through all of this, became angrier with each successive decision, so angry, in fact, that he went before a magistrate and swore that the Mormons were hostile toward the state of Missouri. His affidavit led to, or at least was a factor in, Governor Lilburn Boggs' cruel extermination order, which resulted in over 15,000 saints being driven from their homes, with all the terrible suffering and consequent death that followed. All of this occurred because of a disagreement over the exchange of milk and cream.
0: After 19 years of rancor and loss, Thomas B. Marsh made his way to the Salt Lake Valley and asked President Brigham Young for forgiveness. Brother Marsh also wrote to Heber C. Kimball, first counselor in the first presidency, of the lesson he had learned. Said Brother Marsh, The Lord could get along very well without me. He lost nothing by my falling out of the ranks. But oh, what I have lost! Riches, greater riches than all this world or many planets like this could afford. Just like Paul's concern in Corinth, people can become offended at church, divided over so many things. We weren't noticed. We were misjudged. We were overlooked again and again. Our true worth or our deepest need was never recognized. We cannot let anything divide us from feeling the love of Jesus Christ. One man who had been offended at his stake president said, I showed him— I didn't go to the temple for five years. Well, that really showed him all right. Who was without temple blessings for five years? Not the state president, who may have never even realized that he caused offense. It was the man who chose to be offended.
1: In our world in general, we live in an angry, divisive time. We hear it on the news as commentators from different camps yell and scream at each other. Names are called, labels given to those who don't see the world as you do. People are quick to call each other haters or bigots or evil. Social media can be a hateful place where only certain viewpoints are tolerated. And since readers can send in anonymous comments to newspapers and periodicals, they can really let it rip. They write things they would never say to another human being they met.
0: Apart from these more public places, we are not immune from anger creeping into our homes. It's everywhere. A most gifted and compassionate mother told me that her children surprise her with their anger and sudden outbursts. Another friend told me she has angry fights with her husband. Still another friend confessed that she didn't know what was wrong, but she found herself angry often, a weakness that she thought she had long ago overcome. What's happening to us? Are we and our families absorbing a toxic atmosphere where anger has become the new norm as if it is the only way to speak your mind? We don't have to go there. In fact, we must not go there. We have to say no to anger. By that, we don't mean shove your anger aside or tuck it away for another day. We have to abandon it altogether, and that is a process that we learn. Dante wrote that an inscription marks the gate to hell that reads, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It seems that the gate to the celestial kingdom would have a sign that said just the reverse. Abandon all anger, ye who enter here. When you are angry, you give the best speech you'll ever live to regret.
1: Elder Lynn G. Robbins said, A cunning part of Satan's strategy is to disassociate anger from agency, making us believe that we are victims of an emotion that we cannot control. We hear, I lost my temper. Losing one's temper is an interesting choice of words that has become a widely used idiom. To lose something implies not meaning to, accidental, involuntary, not responsible, careless perhaps, but not responsible. He made me mad. This is another phrase we hear, also implying lack of control or agency. This is a myth that must be debunked. No one makes us mad. Others don't make us angry. There is no force involved. Becoming angry is a conscious choice, a decision. Therefore... We can make the choice not to become angry. We choose End of quote
0: We note that anger might display itself in other ways besides a raised voice, contempt, criticism, blaming, belittling, resenting, easily taking offense, accusing, assuming superiority. These are all expressions of anger and dislike which the adversary loves especially in our homes, because he wants us divided from each other. He delights in our division, and when we dispute or contend, Satan is pleased, and the heavens weep for the misery we cause each other. In fact, we learn from Revelation that Satan is called the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read, For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. What does Satan do? He accuses us day and night, hoping we will be crushed under his blaming and belittling. It sounds terrible, and yet how often do we do that to each other? Too often we are angry and accusing, and we can know that when we are, we are using a tool right out of Satan's arsenal. We have copied him. He is not someone we hope to emulate.
1: While we are dismayed at what an angry society we live in, yet, as Elder Robbins again said, Satan is waging war on the family. One of his schemes is the subtle and cunning way he has of sneaking behind enemy lines and entering our very homes and lives. He damages and often destroys families within the walls of their own homes. His strategy is to stir up anger between family members. Satan is the father of contention— And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. The verb stir sounds like a recipe for disaster. Put tempers on medium heat, stir in a few choice words, and bring to a boil. Continue stirring until thick, cool off. Let feelings chill for several days. Serve cold, lots of leftovers. End of quote.
0: Social science researcher John Gottman has filmed hours and hours of husbands and wives interacting and drawn the conclusion that if a couple exhibits these four qualities in their talk to each other, they will be divorced within five years. Criticism, contempt, defensive behavior, and stonewalling. The latter meaning withdrawing, refusing to communicate, going quiet. All these have to do with anger, hidden or otherwise, and what a sad predictive tool. He tells the couples that he counsels that they cannot live in any of these four places if they want their marriage to survive.
1: Let us also not assume that anger is a useful tool. You don't treat someone with anger and contempt because you think it will motivate them, and that includes your children. It may motivate them for a minute. But long-term, you shrink another person with your anger and demands. Don't use anger to get your own way. You may get your own way, but destroy or diminish a relationship as a consequence. Don't use anger to rev yourself up to accomplish something. Love is a much stronger motivation to get yourself moving forward in life.
0: Scott and I learned something about abandoning anger years ago that we want to share. It's about defensive behavior. You know when you're being defensive. It happens when you feel criticized or when your ideas are attacked. You feel defensive when it seems your identity is on the line. You feel defensive when a situation or person makes you feel stupid or unworthy. When someone disagrees with your most precious ideas. Usually defensiveness happens when you feel that you are backed into a corner. Dozens of things can put you on the defensive. When you feel you have to defend yourself, you start exhibiting defensive behavior. Sometimes your heart rate increases and your emotions rise. You don't respond the same as you would under normal conditions. Something has made you or your identity feel threatened and our usual response to that is to get angry. They say, in fact, that a cornered kitten is a lion. It's like if your being or yourself were a castle and all of a sudden the enemy was storming its integrity you'd send out the defenses. Now, knowing that human beings are prone to get defensive, one of the key ways to avoid anger and strife in your closest relationships is to consciously choose what you say so that it won't put somebody else, especially somebody you love, on the defensive.
1: Think about this. Will what I'm about to say or do put my friend, child, or spouse on the defensive? Will it make them think I'm coming from a superior position? Will it criticize their actions, ideas, looks, or thoughts? Will it express contempt for them? Will they read it as putting them down? Remember, if you're hoping to tell someone something that you think is important for their well-being, or if you plan to disagree with them, you may ignite defensive behavior. And here's the bottom line. Once someone feels defensive, learning ceases immediately.
0: So what are we to do? Let's take, for example, the thousands of decisions that a couple will make over a lifetime together. For sure, they won't always see eye to eye on everything. How do they negotiate their differences without turning to contention or putting each other on the defensive? It's not as hard as it sounds. You just ask permission to talk to your spouse about something that is important to you. When you ask permission, you are acknowledging the importance of that other person's point of view. It might go something like this. Scott, would this be a good time to talk to you about something I've been thinking, but you might see differently? Once someone has granted you their permission, they are also essentially saying that they won't be on the defensive. They no longer feel so threatened by what you are about to say. Sometimes they won't give you permission to talk to them. They might be too stressed or tired, but maybe they might say, can we talk tomorrow about it instead? Respect that.
1: Have we used this tool in our marriage? We certainly have. Have we used it in other relationships? Absolutely. It avoids anger. It's important, too, that often anger is a mask for something else. It is the symptom of a greater cause. Anger may be an expression of unmet needs or exhaustion, or fear, or a feeling threatened, or feeling overlooked, or unimportant, or feeling physically unwell. As we seek to truly abandon anger as a part of our lives, we do want to examine the source of that disquiet in our minds and hearts. What is the real source of this turmoil? Christ can heal us from anger and does by healing it at its deepest source. Why does it matter that we heal the root causes of anger in ourselves? Why does it matter that we learn how to give ourselves to the Lord for His healing touch? It is because when we are angry or experience all its manifestations, the Spirit leaves us. The Spirit does not dwell in an angry soul. We drive it away, and frankly, we just can't afford to be without this comfort and guidance in our lives.
0: David Whitmer gives us an insight into this, telling us that Joseph Smith couldn't translate from the golden plates when he had contention with Emma. He wrote, He, Joseph Smith, was a religious and straightforward man. He had to be, for he was illiterate and he could do nothing of himself. He had to trust in God. He could not translate unless he was humble and possessed the right feelings towards everyone to illustrate so you can see one morning when he was getting ready to continue the translation something went wrong about the house and he was put out about it something that emma his wife had done oliver and i went upstairs and joseph came up soon after to continue the translation but he could not do anything he could not translate a single syllable he went downstairs out into the orchard and made supplication to the lord was gone about an hour came back to the house asked Emma's forgiveness, and then came upstairs where we were, and then the translation went on all right. He could do nothing save he was humble and faithful. If we are not feeling the Spirit in our lives as much as we would like, we might want to check our hearts and cleanse ourselves of anger, resentment, blaming, judgment, all those things that drive the Spirit away.
1: Now Paul has much to say about who are the foolish and who are the wise he writes in 1st corinthians chapter 1 where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this world hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world for the jews require a sign and the greeks seek after wisdom but we preach christ crucified unto the jews a stumbling block and unto the greeks foolishness because the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men Throughout history, the so called wise have thrown epithets at the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling it foolish. They have other words for it as well oppressive, unkind, demanding, wishful thinking. They declare that you are stupid to believe, but oh, how the world's wisdom perishes and looks puny before the wisdom of the Lord. If all the wise in the world, all those with powerful, elite educations, all those experts and philosophers, all the PhDs, all the noted geniuses were to line up and proclaim one thing, and the Lord proclaimed something else, we choose God.
0: Dwayne Boyce wrote, There is a vast difference that exists between our perspectives and those of God. God perceives not only every thought and intent of every person's heart, but also foresees the eternal consequences of every person's choices, and not only the consequences of such choices for themselves, but also for all others who are affected by them. He is also a being of perfect holiness. He has no moral flaws, no selfish motivations. He wants only what is right and pure, and His love for us is perfect and unending not incidentally. His divine purpose is to help each of us become as He is. It is hard to imagine how mortals could be less like God in these respects. Our natural condition limits our perspectives, subjects us to a constant battle with our selfish impulses, taints our love, and bends our purposes toward destructive ends. We are perfect at nothing.
1: Duane Boyce continued, Because of these vast differences, it seems reasonable to expect God to behave and think differently about various matters than we do, and His ways will routinely make little sense to us. As President Spencer W. Kimball reported, I have learned that where there is a prayerful heart, a hungering after righteousness, a forsaking of sins, and obedience to the commandments of God, the Lord pours out more and more light until there is finally power to pierce the heavenly veil, and to know more than man knows. To know more than man knows, precisely, we know immeasurably less than we imagine, and for one who has pierced the veil, nothing could be more evident.
0: So how do we learn? Paul teaches us about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We learn things of the spirit through the spirit. How could we learn spiritual things any other way? It is the Spirit that teaches us to know the things of the Spirit, and it is the most valuable knowledge we can acquire. President Russell M. Nelson said, Truth given by revelation can only be understood by revelation.
1: Elder Richard G. Scott said, Humility is essential to the acquiring of spiritual knowledge. To be humble is to be teachable. Humility permits you to be tutored by the Spirit, and to be taught from sources inspired by the Lord, such as the Scriptures. The seeds of personal growth and understanding germinate and flourish in the fertile soil of humility. Their fruit is spiritual knowledge to guide you here and hereafter. A proud individual cannot know the things of the Spirit.
0: President Joseph F. Smith said, The greatest achievement mankind can make in this world is to familiarize themselves with divine truth so thoroughly, so perfectly, that the example or conduct of no creature living in the world can ever turn them away from the knowledge that they have obtained. From my boyhood, I have desired to learn the principles of the gospel in such a way that it would matter not to me who might fall from the truth, My foundation would be certain in the truths I have learned. This comes from soaking yourself thoroughly in the scriptures and the word of the Lord. You can become unshakable. And is it worth it? Literally more than we have the capacity to imagine while we are here in mortality.
1: A favorite scripture from Paul that gives us a hint how little we understand what the Lord has for us is this. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We will say after this lifetime, there is no way that we can deserve what we have been given.
0: President Dieter F. Uchtdorf asked, What kind of existence can we hope for? Those who come unto Christ, repent of their sins, and live in faith will reside forever in peace. Think of the worth of this eternal gift. Surrounded by those we love, we will know the meaning of ultimate joy as we progress in knowledge and in happiness. No matter how bleak the chapter of our lives may look today, and sometimes they really do look bleak, because of the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we may hope and be assured that the ending of the book of our lives will exceed our grandest expectations. L. A. Maxwell added, We are not now ready for all the things the Lord has prepared in the city of God for them that love Him. Our present eyes are unready for things which they have not yet seen, and our ears are not prepared for the transcending sounds and music of that city.
1: The trek will be proving and trying. Faith, patience, and obedience are essential, but he who completes the journey successfully will be immeasurably added upon and he who does not will have subtracted from the sum of his possibilities. When we arrive home, we shall be weary and bruised, but at last our aching homesicknesses will cease. Meanwhile, our mortal homecomings are but faint foreshadowings of that homecoming.
0: Thank you for being with us today. Remember to go to latterdaystmag.com forward slash calendar to pre-order the First Vision 2020 calendar that Scott has created from his stunning photography. There are limited quantities and you'll want them to celebrate this 2020 bicentennial of Joseph Smith's First Vision. Order them for your friends and family too. They only cost $15.
1: Thanks again to Paul Cardall for the music that begins and ends this podcast. Next week we will talk about Ye Are the Body of Christ, which is 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. You can find the transcript of this podcast at latterdaystmag.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.